Prestige, it seems to me, is an unavoidably zero-sum game. It's finite. You know, there's only so much airtime available, and museums have the power to allocate that airtime. And so my vision, broadly, is for museums to become places where we come together to seek justice. From Halif Contemporary, this is To The Point, a series of podcasts where we talk with collectors, advisors and curators about collecting contemporary art in the 21st century. More than ever, art reflects our humanity in an increasingly technological and remote world. Beyond aesthetic purposes, art is a running commentary on the human condition. As a psychological statement, it disturbs our apathy. Art is calling out to us to pay attention. My name is Vivian Roberts and I'm the founder of Aleph Contemporary, a new London art gallery where we focus on painting today. Collecting, as opposed to investing, reflects an enduring fascination with fine art, leading to connoisseurship. Many collectors start out with limited means, buying their first work because they relate to it. A relationship with art is born, leading to acquisition of the next piece and the next. The process opens up a fascinating new world for the collector, who will often follow the artist's development throughout their career. In this series, I shall speak with some of today's most inspired collectors, investigating what drives them and exploring their passion for art. Today I welcome John Sharples, an intellectual property lawyer, curator, broadcaster and an avid art collector who by his early 30s has already accumulated a collection of over 200 works. John is on the boards of Block 336, an artist from Project Space in Brixton and on the Liverpool Biennial of Contemporary Art. John, welcome. As a lawyer you specialise in art law, intellectual property and copyright. Did you choose this field because you loved art or was it the other way around? The first part of that is easy because I definitely knew I wanted to be a lawyer long before I knew that I wanted to work in visual art. So as early as maybe 12 or 13 watching Ali McBeal on Channel 4, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. And you mentioned copyright. It was only after graduating when I really settled on the idea of intellectual property as a specialism at all. So Beyond that, I think there are lots of parallels and crossovers between law and art. So law is the ultimate intellectual construct, the choreography that makes communal living possible and enables us to describe and shape our interactions, Um, probably more so even than the notion of money, which, after all, is founded upon the notion of a binding promise. So I'm interested in intellectual constructs how ideas circulate and how humans interact with each other. Um, Civilization, basically. And so I I think, uh, I also believe that a good way to reach good outcomes is to stress test ideas and see what comes out on top and to break things down into their component parts and put them back together in a way that adds value. And that's that's a description of artists and lawyers, I think. Um, I think it's important always to be testing the reliability of evidence with a critical eye and that's something that we do in law and in art and in copyright specifically i'm interested in the concept of originality uh, what's up for grabs and what's not what the boundary is between appropriation that we want to support and the copying that we want to prevent Uh, so i think the, the the two things relate to each other in lots of ways And there's another thing, which is that both art and law can be seen from the outside as being willfully inaccessible. So in both fields, uh, people perceive a certain amount of protectionism in the form of obscure codes and language designed to keep people on the other side of the fence. But there's no magic to it. And 
practicing law isn't like being initiated into some wizard's guild where you're taught spells that ordinary people can't use. It just isn't like that. And in the same way, you and I are both passionate about the accessibility of art and specifically contemporary art. Um, you know, there's no need to shroud it in jargon to make it sound like it's something more than it is. But nevertheless, it, it is important. So it's important that people can use that shared language with each other. What drew you to collecting art? Is there a history of collecting in your family? What drives your passion to collect? Well, there's definitely no history of collecting in my family. Um, I think it's difficult to say what drives an acquisitive instinct in particular, as opposed to a more general desire just to be around art. Um, I think as a trainee corporate lawyer, I was aware of how constrained that world was. So despite some of the lofty things I have to say that are associated with the practice of law, um, working in that environment can be suffocating. And so within those four glass corporate walls, the overwhelming focus is on making money, targets, um, you know, the billable hours, et cetera, that support that. So art is a window, an escape to other ways of living. And collecting art in particular is a way of accessing another way of living. So to support the work of someone who is living a life that you can't and in some ways wish you could, that, that's partly why I collect. So that's um, an identity and it's also a sharing with yeah, the artist. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's my way of associating, of realising the, the limitations of my own life. Like, you know, you can only live one life and I'd probably try and live 10, but you can, but when you buy into someone's art practice, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, you want to associate yourself with their ideas and what they're exploring and, and to support that exploration. And it, it's interesting because I, I think about this quite a lot, which is, you know, what is the difference between wanting to own art and to be around art? Um, especially when, you know, the fundamental quality of ownership is the right to exclude others from the thing you own. And in some ways, that seems like a, a counterintuitive thing with art when you, when you, if you're interested in the, the sharing of ideas. Um, but it, it's, I think, apart from just the obvious practical point of wanting to have art affecting your environment and your everyday life, it's, it's partly that point of investing in and supporting another way of life that isn't yours. You create yourself by your affiliations. And one of the way that you, you are affiliated with artists is to support their work. And as your wife is an artist too. She's a she's, musician. She's, yeah, she's an actor and a singer. Um, does, she, uh, does she participate in your passion for art? She just about tolerates it. Um, she, so for her, this is a conversation we have all the time is she, because she's a performer and gets on stage and sings and acts, she says that her art is visceral and doesn't need a wall label to explain what's going on. So that's her constant criticism of the kind of art that I'm interested in. Um, she's has very interesting and intelligent takes on figurative art. So whenever there's an image or a sculpture that involves figures that relate to each other in space. You know, she has a high emotional intelligence for, for 
how people interact and what might be going on and what the, what the subtext is, um, as you'd expect, because that's, that's her trade. Um, we have almost completely clashing aesthetic tastes. <laughs> so she likes gothic clutter and I like sleek modernism as that's kind of crude oversimplification of the situation. But, but actually it all works out in the end because really life is too short to be a minimalist. And so I, I have so much art um, stacked up on the walls and so it just wouldn't work for me to be you know if, if i had all the time in the world i would be a minimalist but actually we, we don't have that long and so i'm, I'm forced into a, a more cluttered look at home and a salon hang etc are there any works you regret not buying the ones that got away i remember you talking about alvaro barrington he's an interesting figure Yes. Well, Alvaro, Alvaro is someone who I saw his degree show at Slade in 2017. And before I even really saw his work, I saw him. So he was there uh, invigilating and, and standing with his work. Um, and it was immediately clear that he was just a magnetic personality. You know, you wanted to go and spend time with him in that space. And then I saw his work and in some way it's quite a simple visual language. It's quite an elemental visual language, but, um, but just very clever. Like he, he managed to say a lot with quite a little. So he makes these brilliant postcards, uh, found postcards that, to which he adds um, twine. And the, the visual result uh, is quite incongruous, but it's precisely that incongruity that... Uh, I think he's trying to set up. And so um, what I bought from his degree show was one small example of these small found postcards. Now, I wish I had been able to buy paintings and, and the other things he was, he was showing because, uh, you know, he's, he's now, it three short years later, w way out of my league financially. An amazing career. Oh, yeah, stratospheric already. Um, so, you know, everyone has found him to be magnetic. And in some ways, he's been able to set his own rules of engagement for who he's worked with. Um, well, they're like Basquiat. Right. Yeah. And, and Basquiat is an important reference point for him as well. Um, there are loads of artists who I've seen early and thought they would have impressive careers. And for whatever reason, I, I, you know, I wasn't in a position to collect their work at the time. The, 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 so Alva, in some ways, is a happy story because I do have my small token of his degree show that is one of my proudest possessions. But um, there's another artist you may be familiar with, Michael Armitage. Um, and I saw his work back in 2014, I think, before White Cube picked him up. Um, you know, and, and recommended to people I was working with at the time that we should really buy this painting by Michael Armitage. It, re um, it reminded me quite strongly of the work of one of my favourite painters, Herman Anderson. And it's just, there was just a lot about it that I thought was interesting and timely, even though at that point I hadn't met Michael. Um, yeah, so he is definitely one who got away. And uh, as it happens, White Cube ended up buying the painting that I saw and adding him to their roster and giving him shows. And he's had 
an amazing few years since as well and and, and indeed has since become a friend of mine um so usually when we're talking about the artists who got away we're talking about the artists who've become inaccessible financially and that's 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 a shame but it's also a great thing for those artists i'm very happy to see artists like that go on and have success um and you know as i've as my career has developed a bit i don't have to let quite as many things go by as i used to so you know i'm i'm on on balance i think i've bought the work of more artists that I wanted to buy the work of than I've let slide by. So that's, that's a happy position. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good record. But there are definitely others like this. Um, there's a painter called Nick Goss, who now is, is having museum shows and is being widely recognized. Um, a painter called Louise Giovanelli, who I, whose work that I really liked when I first saw it and I don't have one. Um, Mircea Taliaga, who's with Aleph. I think he he's a very fine painter and will have a you know a, a big future and I you know I don't have a uh, a work by Mircea so yeah there's always there's always ones who go by and and I, and I don't think that you can you can't possibly live thinking that you need to collect everyone but um but you can but, still buy Mircea he's still affordable yeah well he's still uh, relatively affordable yeah yeah. And I encourage people to buy Mitch's work. I think one day he will be unaffordable. Um, and, you know, it's a good thing because if we all just thought that there was no hurry and you could, the work would be accessible forever, then there'd be no urgency, would there? And, you know, you'd come to buying decisions a lot more slowly and indeed perhaps never at all. And so, um, yeah, that little bit of excitement and the, the, the frisson that says if you don't do it now the chance might be gone forever that's kind of healthy for everyone involved and in some ways what makes um the market for contemporary art work at all yes that's true and without collectors there'd be no bodies of work right i think that's yeah, yeah i think that's true as well and, and that's and the, the some of the areas where that becomes most apparent is where there is no critical mass in the market so as you know i'm um I'm interested in performance art as well as objects. And one of the things that holds that back as an area of art practice is that there isn't a thriving and established market for it. And so the, 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 pla the various platforms of support are limited by that fact. The fact that painting sells and circulates is part of what makes all painting possible. Do you have any performance art in your collection? I don't, I don't. And I really see, I've thought really hard about, you know, whether, whether to make an investment in that. And I say an investment, not in a financial speculative sense, because that's not the reason that I buy any art, but um, because I genuinely believe that performance art is still an area in which if you're someone of relatively modest means, you can still buy very significant performance art right now, whereas that isn't true in painting. You know, if you're if you, right now, if you want to buy painting that has a very clear museum trajectory already, that is the reserve of the seriously wealthy. But ordinary professionals could could be active participants in the market for performance art now, um, and buy stuff that you know has a real prospect of being shown in museums within a very short space of time 
It's I interesting because it's a copyright, isn't it? But the actual performance has to happen again, as the Dyke Theatre. Yeah, the copyright issues around performance are, are very interesting because it's very hard to pin down exactly where the intellectual property rights reside. Um, so people instinctively understand the documentation, you know, the film or the photographs, but exactly what is protectable in the notion of instructions for restaging, you know, that's, that's a developing area. And this, going back to why do people collect at all, um, yeah, the, the, the subject of why you would want to own performance art when ownership is defined by excluding people from the thing you own is a really interesting one because obviously there are philanthropists who like to fund performance and like to enable it to happen. And so I'm, I am interested in what the crossover is between those people and the people who actually want to own it. It is a question of protecting also the purity of how it was originally performed. Yeah, well, purity is an interesting word because I've spoken about performance art um, on the continent before. So at a conference in Brussels and, and, and in France and uh, some of those people, because I'm working towards um, describing and packaging performance art in a way that can be sold and can be transferred, um, I think they see me as being some incredibly mercantile Anglo-Saxon who wants to commodify everything, even the ephemeral matters of the soul. And, you know, there's no doubt that there's a lot of performance art that exists in a tradition of market resistance. Um, you know, precisely the, the fact that it isn't an easily commodifiable object is one of the levels on which the work operates. And so for some things you just it cannot be sold it can't be owned and that's part of the thrill of it in a world where everything it seems can be however there are certain things that i think can legitimately transfer as intellectual constructs um and with some money associated with it and so you know so my my aim in this area is that it can't be that the only performance art that can ever be made is that is funded by you know the arts council or whichever national funding body there is it, it it's you've got more chance of more performance art and more good performance art being made if it's something that can be in private collections why more money well just just um, because otherwise you have a very small concentration of people who who pick the winners yeah who make the who make the funding decisions right okay Whereas if you have a narrowness in that i see I yeah see. yeah so there's a uh, political there, yeah. there was a, a French artist who told me that um, the only time that her works were ever really performed properly in the sense that they were funded properly. Yeah. And, I, I, and I don't know if there was something lost in translation, but she said that it's, you know, when the French Ministry for Immaterial Art funded a performance. And to me, it's not a promising thing if the French Ministry for Immaterial Art is the only body that decides what, what art is made and what isn't. Right, because they censor, and that can be very narrow, very narrow. Do you like to be involved with artists you collect? Do you feel you can make a difference to their career? I'm thinking of Jacopo Dalbello, the show you are curating for us in June. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, like to, I definitely like to meet artists, and that ties back to what I was saying about... You know, why you would collect art at all, which was, um, you know, buying into 
a piece of a life that you find in some way attractive or romantic or is exploring something that you think should be explored. Great, you get very involved. Yeah, and I and I and I think uh, you, you curated at Simmons and Simmons, didn't you as well? Yes, when you were in your twenties. Yes, partly it's. And you're only thirty-four now, aren't you? Thirty-four this year, yeah, not yet thirty-four. Not uh, yet thirty-four. Not yet thirty-four. Very young collector. It's got very early grey hairs. And you and you already have two hundred more than two hundred works in your collection. Yes, and partly that's partly um, what I collect is driven by the price point I am able to collect at. And yes. so, but to to go back to your kind of the first way you asked that was, do I like to be involved? Yes, I especially like to collect when it makes a difference whether or not I'm collecting. So if an artist is already validated and already has a thriving market, mm-hmm. in some ways there's nothing left for me to do or to contribute. And, you know, it, it may be that you're still interested into, in, in buying work by artists when they don't particularly care whether you're buying it or not. But it, I think it's much more flattering for a collector to be involved in a way that's meaningful and, and is noticed. Because um, there's no doubt that when artists do have this meteoric rise in a few years, you know, they remember the people who were there right at the beginning. Yes, and appreciate that, and well, realise that it could never have happened without it. And yeah. so, and so that's yeah. I so I I value the chance to make a difference in in who pushes on and who doesn't, because of course we know the numbers. You know, every year, London and art schools around the world churn out loads of really good fine art graduates, and the chances are that in ten years' time. The, the percentage of any one cohort that will still be making most of their living from art will be 10%, less than 10%. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're as a collector, you, you, you have a role in, in helping the ones that you would like to see make it and carry on. You know, that's an important time, isn't it? It's a very, very sensitive time. Yes. Without collectors, artists would starve. <clears throat> Yes, I mean, and it's, and it's, I think the world has changed a lot in quite a short space of time, whereby um, we all want respectability now. Like the idea, the idea of, um, the romantic idea of the artist in the garret, I don't know, it's just that, that's not, that's no longer an idea and and, and nor should it be. Um, So I don't think it's about artists starving, but if we think of art now in an incredibly professionalized way. And so if, if you're going to have a, have, have a career, then pretty early on, you need to have a coalition of support behind you. How did you discover Jacopo? He was taught by a friend of mine at the CAS. So he was taught by Andrew Hewish, who is um, a fine art tutor, who's very widely respected and admired. And, um, he was interested in Jacopo's work and as well as teaching him was himself a collector and just something about the the work resonated with me straight away so uh Jacopo is brilliant at synthesizing various parts of art history um and coming up with a final result that is completely his own so he he's really good at 
borrowing and referencing without ever straying over into being derivative. And so y- Jacopo is uh, an interesting and philosophical guy generally as well, you know, in addition to his painting and he's interested in knowledge systems, you know, how we organize knowledge, how we categorize it. And I think in art itself as a knowledge system and a self-referential language, um, and I think that he's very deft in borrowing from the different corners of that language. And it's very efficient, isn't it? Because when you, when you borrow things that already have meaning, it means you know, you, you, you're, you're not just starting from, from scratch. You're, you're playing with building blocks of meaning that already exist. You're emerging from art history. Yeah. And of course, that's inevitable, isn't it? Because if you're an Italian man, called Jacopo, you know, the first name of Tintoretto, as soon as you presume to make art at all, you're, everyone else who's ever done that, especially as an Italian, is in the room with you to some extent. So I, li- I, I like the way he acknowledges that. So everyone's, as soon as you presume to pick up a paintbrush, all of those people are, could be looking over your shoulder you know, you don't want to be doing that or maybe you'd be interested in this. And in some ways, if you, if you, if you were, you could bow to that pressure and never wield a paintbrush at all, or you find your own way through it. So that's one of the things that, one of the reasons Jacopo interests me so much, because I just think that he has really good taste for knowing when to borrow. And as you say, adding something from our own time and with flashes of things that are genuinely original. Um, And as I say, our relationship with originality, I find very interesting. And in some ways we privilege originality above everything. Um, You know, originality is the threshold that entitles you to protection in copyright law. If it's not original, you don't get your protection. But on the other hand, we want artists to be free to sample and use source material um, to use the images of the world to show the world a reflection of itself, you know, to use images like found objects. Yes. I mean, Jacopo uses found objects as well. Yes. And, and I, when the Rauschenberg show was on at Tate Modern, whenever it was, Jacopo and I went together and it was a, a, a light bulb moment for me because how he treats images and objects is the same, which is that they kind of all have a certain equality. There's no hierarchy that says, you know, this kind of painting has a higher status than this, or that this object is a fine art material and this thing from the street isn't. You know, under Jacopo's eye, they all have equal status. And the interesting thing is what he adds to it by putting them together. You are on the committee of several charities and public institutions. Could you please talk about them? So there's a couple of boards that I sit on. Uh, one is Block 336, which is a um, artist-run project space and studio provider in Brixton. The other one, joined more recently last year, is the Liverpool Biennial of Contemporary Art, which is where I'm originally from. Um, and they're both they're both terrific things to be involved with because 
in some ways and in, in different ways, but something they both have in common is that they exist to allow artists to be adventurous. So block 336, the guiding principle is that we have this unusual, large subterranean space, you know, within zone two in London. Um, and the idea is that we give it over to artists to live in that space and then do something that expands their normal studio practice. And so, and not only with the physical space, but with the technical and financial resources to go beyond the kind of work they usually make. So it's not really curated, you know, it's, it tends to be a collaboration between the artist or artists and Block's incredibly competent and expert team and their artists themselves. Um, well, so, Alex yeah. Goff, for instance, is resident artist. Alex, Alex Goff. So Alex Goff has a studio there. Yes. And um, is also a just a brilliant technician. Um, and he, he makes, he helps us install work to a standard that needn't feel embarrassed next to any of the um, institutions with far more resources than us. So when, when Alex puts his mind to installing video work, for example, I think we get an audio, audio visual experience that is equal to, let's say, 180 Strand, which has you know, significant funding behind it, or a museum display. So what we're able to do, and historically have been able to do on a pretty modest budget, is to give artists a platform that's like their first real institutional show. Rather like what Matt's gallery does. Right, so Max Gallery are a huge source of inspiration for us. So we look back at the history of what, what Matt's Gallery made possible. You know, that's where we would like to be as well. So yeah, Matt's Gallery is, is a very good example. Anything about the Liverpool Biennale, John? Tell me about it. Yeah, so the Liverpool Biennial is the UK's foremost contemporary art biennial. So it was founded in the 90s, so it's, it's long running. It has this long track record. Um, and it, I experienced it for years just as a punter, you know, it's as a something that I would see as and when I was at home in the Northwest. And so there are certain works that stick out in my mind. So there's Richard Wilson created a work um, with a, a 10 meter disc cut out of the side of an office building that just rotated in space. And it was a kind of spectacle kind of contemporary art spectacle that not only engaged international art curators, but it would engage taxi drivers in and around Liverpool and everyone would want to talk about it. And so one of the things I'm most excited about when it comes to biennials is the possibility to do things that aren't possible in museum settings or in art fair settings. You know, that it's possible to have this real ambition and placemaking that um, museums just can't do. So there's this fascinating exchange between presenting Liverpool to the international community, but also bringing the international community to the people of Liverpool. And that dynamic 
and the sense of occasion that comes by running something every two years um, is very exciting. And it all takes place in Liverpool, in the Northwest, out of the shadows of the establishment in London. You know, in, in London, we have these big institutions competing with each other from, for attention and inevitably coming across as um, holding themselves out as an authority. Now, Liverpool Biennial doesn't hold itself out to be an authority. It is a, it's a facilitating idea that... Um, experimental. Experimental. And, and it's art that is, is linked to and for a place rather than you know, the sanitised white cube of a gallery. You have expressed great admiration for Nicholas Sirota and even said you would like to be head of Tate. Can you tell us about your vision? So it is a bit embarrassing to have people quote back to me that I've said I would like to be head of Tate. Um, all I mean by that is, well, if there's one thing I've learned in recent years is that um, the world can't read your mind. And so if you let people know what it is you would like to do, it's amazing how often people will do their best to make, to help you realize that vision and connect you to people who can help you. And, and, and I do that when people tell me what it is they're looking to do. You know, my first reaction is to think, how can I help? And so, although it's slightly ludicrous to say that I'd like to be director of Tate, it's just, it's, it's a thought experiment really. Um, and it doesn't have to be Tate. It's just that I would like to be involved in museums and the presentation of culture. Um, and I just think it's it's such an interesting moment to, to think about what the role of museums is. So my vision broadly is for museums to become places where we come together to seek justice. Um, you know, not, not in the narrowest legal sense, but in the broader sense of social justice. So whose story is told? Who's given the resources to tell it? What perspectives are involved? Who can access that conversation? Um, the thing about museums is that for a mix of complex historical reasons, they are in a position today to allocate prestige as a resource. And prestige, it seems to me, is an unavoidably zero-sum game. It's finite. You know, there's only so, so much airtime available, and museums have the power to allocate that airtime. And so I think that's a significant responsibility to do that well. I'd, I'd like to be involved in, in that process. Um, and yeah, you mentioned Sir Nick. He is a hero of mine, you know, the towering figure of, in culture in the UK in the last 30 years. Um, partly because he had the vision thing. You know, he, he had the vision that, um, that contemporary art and international art could be a mainstay of the... British cultural scene when it wasn't before. Um, he had the vision to know that if you look after and advocate for artists, then everything follows from that. You know, so artists love Sorota because he goes into bat for them. You know, he stands up for them. Um, so, he, you know, as a visionary, he's a hugely important figure. But Equally, as an administrator, he's an important figure. So, so one of the things that he's been able to do is, um, 
join disparate groups up in a way that has to happen if you're going to achieve anything. You know, so it's as well as being a very capable curator, I admire him as a, as a politician and as a chief executive. You know, it's no, no accident. His mother was a, was a politician. And w- one of the things that he can do is being the mediator in between groups that couldn't otherwise communicate with each other. Which is incredibly difficult to do. Very difficult to do. And Sorota speaks the language of artists. So ar- artists will speak to him on a level yes. and know that he understands what it is they're doing. But at the same time, he can go and speak to politicians and they also recognize him as one of them. And he can, he can go and speak to funders and business people and they also respect him as understanding their concerns. And so he, he plays this incredible, important, pivotal role in the middle of all these different, I hate to use the corporate word, stakeholders, but you know, he joins people, to, joins people up. And to the extent that I you can do that. feel I have something to contribute in a similar way, I can talk to artists and I can talk to business people and I enjoy being in the middle and being a translator and, and, you know, oiling the cogs that help these things happen. I know that I have just as the nature of my job and my training, I have a deep well of patience for bureaucracy and process in a way that, very useful in a way that artists and creative people don't always have yes. so m- my contribution can be you know i can i can do some of that that grunt work and the heavy lifting as a way of providing a platform for art to happen and so that yes that's that's what that's sorota is this towering figure because he's He's made things possible that wouldn't otherwise have been possible without him involved. And I, I met him for the first time at the back end of last year and had a chat with him. And it, I, no, I've, I've met him fleetingly before, but this is the first proper conversation I had with him. And I was struck by, it was like talking to a QC in the sense that he had a, he was, very quickly got to what was important on whatever issue it was we were talking about. You know, he had a, it just had a, that quality of being able to zoom in with laser focus on the real nub of the issue. And it's not a quality that that many people have, you know, lot, most people have to flounder around and, and, and it takes them a while to work out what the key points are. But, um, everything we talked about and you know he's a he's a he's a guy that's got this huge brief like just so many people are feeding him information and want his attention and the reason he can make it work is because he has this quality of being able to pick out the important points and that's incredible that's exceptional and you have that quality too i don't have that quality you know not not, not like that because i and i've i've as i say the, the the closest parallel in my professional life so far is working with barristers and um and it's you can come and present them with three dossiers of material and leave them with it for an hour and they'll somehow have worked out what the key three points are that ability to process large volumes of information 
and separate the wheat from the chaff is just an incredible thing. And now I'm very thorough and methodical, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to have that, that, uh, that quality in the, in the same way, but you know, I do have some qualities and I, and I do think that I can do some of what I was talking about as a kind of go between. But given another 10 years, you'll have developed them. Given another 10 years, maybe let's see. Cause he, cause I'm sure that, um, it does come from experience. You know, you've, once you've seen an all, you know what you need to concentrate on and what actually perhaps doesn't need so much attention. And, and yes, perhaps that it does come with, with some experience. So we're having this, converse, this conversation during lockdown because of the COVID-19, which is an unprecedented circumstance. And um, we haven't focused on it during our conversation, but is there anything you'd like to say about it? How it has affected your life at the present time? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I've been very lucky in that certainly most of my legal work has just carried on without, without being too affected. Um, I think one comment I would have is that um, humans are incredibly adaptable um, and we've shown that already. So people have adapted really incredibly in a very short space of time to a complete change of living situation and habit. Um, and, I, and for that reason, I do think that we will be able to move back when the restrictions are lifted. Um, but I think all the conversations about how we will be changed are very interesting. What one thing I would say is that um, people tend to use the crisis um, as a tool to, to push whichever agenda they already had. <laughs> so, you know, for people who's, who are very passionate rightly about climate change, they'll say, aha, well, this shows you we can work without traveling, that we can be left less consumptive. Okay, so people who already thought that still think that, and this is a handy rhetorical thing to wave to support the views they already had. In the same way, when people talk about whichever art form they're passionate about, there's a way to make an argument that coronavirus means that that art form will now have the ascendancy when we all come out of it. So something I've heard people say is that people are really going to crave live experiences. So it's all going to be about performance art when we come out. It's all going to be about bodies in space. And um, fine, I think there are very good arguments for saying that we will really crave those experiences when we come out. Um, I've heard other people say that because we've all had these small lives, what it's really going to be about is big installations, like installation, you know, experiential Gesamtkunstwerks that means we're expanded from our small domestic environments. Um, but do you know what? I think it's just as likely that people will have spent this time finding solace in nuance and you know if you're prevented from going to museums then you have to walk around and find your aesthetic stimulation in the environment that's around you and so partly we have a new appreciation for the way that crack on the pavement looks or the way the light plays in that window and so to me it's just as likely that we'll come out of this with 
you know, a heightened appreciation and sensitivity to those things. And so this is quite a long way of saying that um, I don't think that any one dynamic is, is necessarily going to prevail. Like there's, it, it will affect us in all sorts of ways. But um, anyone who says that they can that they can see into the future and this is really going to be the trend. But what about um, the increased effect of the internet, online viewing, etc.? Yeah, you know, something I was talking to students from the RCA about when it was announced that they weren't going to have a physical degree show. Um, it was interesting to, to go back through the teaching that they'd had on, for example, why painting is a necessarily in real life experience about materials and surface and texture and something that cannot be adequately represented by the digital world. Um, which is not to say that there aren't good digital gateways into that physical experience. Now, Aleph itself is one such digital gateway into a satisfying physical experience. You know, you've got lots of great painters on your sides. Um, but the activity that people enjoy isn't looking at those works online, but it might be that looking at them online is a path to them enjoying them physically. So that... Um, make them want to see them in reality. Make them want to see them in reality, yes. So I think, yeah, the internet can certainly play a role in, um, in, in building that curiosity and driving that anticipation. Um, but ultimately the payoff is the physical experience. Yeah, so therefore, do you think there will be more studio visits and private visits as opposed to large gatherings of people that were used to in private views? So first of all, I just think it's too early to say. Uh, who, kno who knows? We don't, it's very difficult to say right now how, how much longer this will be going on. My instinct is that we will get back to private views in the same way that we had them before as quickly as we can, that people want that because private views are about so many things other than just seeing the work. I mean, partly it's about physically showing your support for whichever artist is showing or whichever gallery is, is putting a show on. People appreciate that gesture of showing up and being in the room. Actually, a private view is the single worst time in any exhibition to see the work. Yes. Um, and I generally don't these days go to them for that reason, but nevertheless, they are a good opportunity to see people and to network. And as I say, to, um, to, to show support. And, and actually I think physically showing up to support people is as likely to be as important as ever when all this ends. I mean, we, we, we will definitely retain some benefits. Um, people who will have, previously been refuseniks when it comes to using technology will have had to have got on board in this period. And so it might be, for example, that board meetings that um, could only happen previously when people traveled and got into a room together, they might now happen online. And, there might, and that might be a very good result. You can have some very good board meetings online. In fact, in some ways, they're more orderly than they are in person. And so now that we all know how to do it, there's no excuse for not doing it. And, and especially when there's a cost implication of having everyone traveling to a physical space. So yeah. some things will change. I, I, I don't think that people who enjoy doing physical studio visits 
will will in the future say, well, now I can do them online, so I don't need to do them physically. I can't wait to get into artist studios and smell those smells and um, you know see those textures and that you can't represent online that kind of constellation of ideas that comes together in a in a studio. But do I think that ad additional to those physical visits, you might now do some online visits as well as a, to, to supplement and augment the physical experiences? Yes, I think maybe. So hopefully the outcome will be that we all do far more studio visits overall, but I certainly don't see us doing fewer physical visits. So there it is. Um, who knows? I do know that I cannot wait for museums, galleries, studios to open up again. That is the light at the end of the tunnel in so many ways. So let's all look forward to that. Thank you, John, for coming and speaking today. It's always a delight to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>